Yeah, I'm excited about today. You sent me like beforehand, here's some info so we don't look stupid. And then I started reading. I'm like, well, if I'm going to look stupid. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, everybody? It is episode 235 of Bourbon Pursuit. And this week we are back in action yet again, talking about bourbon. But before we do that, we do have some news to cover. Now, we already know that the trade war, it's going pretty strong and bourbon has been hit and there's no telling if that is ever going to end. But now there's a new target in sight as part of a retaliation effort. And we're looking at wine as I sort of say more specifically European wine and other kind of European whiskeys. So there is currently a looming trade tariff of up to 100 percent that would affect all European Union countries selling wine and other spirits to the United States. Now, wine in general is imported as a $20 billion a year industry here in the States. And this follows already an existing round of 25% tariffs that have been levied back in October against Spain, France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. American wine drinkers would be faced with fewer wines coming to America from the EU, especially those made by small independent producers. And you can expect higher prices on those bottles that do make it in. For those that make a livelihood in the wine trade, the mood is less than stellar. Importers, distributors, wine shop owners, sommeliers, and grocery store wine buyers said that they fear they would have to impose salary or staffing cuts as a result of dramatically reduced profit margins. Now, you might think that this would be good for domestic wine producers like those in California that make up 95% of the U.S. wine market. However, the Wine Institute has spoken out against the tariffs, arguing that the EU could just as easily turn around and target U.S. wines in a tit-for-tat trade war. As much as California vendors want to serve up their wine for domestic consumers, Europe is still their most important export market, bringing in around $469 million in 2018. And you can find the links to these two articles from the LA Times and QZ.com with the link in our show notes. The Tennessee ABC has issued cease and desist orders from out-of-state businesses who have been doing direct-to-consumer shipments of alcohol. Now, we talk about shipping alcohol all the time on the podcast, and this one is kind of rolling things back in a negative way. As a quote, wine is the only alcoholic beverage that can be legally shipped direct to consumers in Tennessee, and it requires a winery direct shipper's license issued by the commission. And this is coming from the Tennessee ABC director, Russell Thomas. The Tennessee ABC recently discovered the illegal shipments after analyzing common carrier reports compiled by the Tennessee Department of Revenue. It requires common carriers to file alcohol delivery reports to the Department of Revenue each month, and it also requires that any business that sells and ships wine direct to Tennessee has to be licensed as well. In other news, the Scottish government is trying to tackle booze-related criminals, and they have given the green light to remote alcohol monitoring and sobriety tags after awarding a multi-million pound security firm contract. The anti-booze ankle tags can detect if you've consumed alcohol by monitoring the sweat every 30 minutes from your pores. But ministers are still in talks about handling Scottish courts the power to force these criminals whose convictions are linked to alcohol to actually wear these tags. If this goes ahead, then they could be forced to go alcohol-free for months to tackle the drinking problem which contributed to their crimes. You can find the link to the Scottish Sun within our show notes. All right. So you ready to geek out? And I mean like super bourbon geek out. I heard about our guest today, Tom Collins, after I learned he gave an in-depth talk at Tales. 
it intrigued me to know more about the science behind bourbon. Tom has dedicated part of his career to the details of alcohol. And for us, it's looking at the chemical composition of bourbon, as well as the chemical influence from the barrels as well. We examine at a scientific level what certain char levels create, how entry proof affects it, and how bourbon and rye are different from their molecular makeup. Like I said, get ready to geek out. But now, let's go ahead, take a break. We're gonna hear from Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Kyleman on Twitter or at Bourbon Numbers. On January 2nd, he wrote me and said, does making a career out of your hobby ever diminish the fun or actually deepen the experience? Do you have a hobby you would not go pro for that reason? Thanks. That's a great question, Kyleman, and I actually do have quite a bit of experience with this. See, I initially started my career as a sports writer. Well, professionally I did. So my career starts as like an ag journalist where I was covering crops and uh, cattle futures and things like that. But I always wanted to be a sports writer because I was a huge sports junkie. I get into sports, you know, in high school. I start writing about, uh, you know, local football games, track, baseball. I would also write about um, anything that anybody would let me write about, to be honest with you. But I get to college and I start writing about sports and I take a job with the Daily Oklahoma and I'm on the sports desk there and I'm writing the headlines for the Daily Oklahoma. And I start interviewing athletes and coaches. And there was one thing that was pretty common. It did not matter the the level uh, or the sport. Coaches did not treat reporters with the same respect that they did colleagues or, or their players or parents even. And the players kind of followed the leadership of their coaches. And for the most part, reporters get treated like crap in the sports business. And you don't have to look any further than a Bill Parcells or Bill Belichick um, press conference to see what I'm talking about. They often come with a, a very much a, a disdain toward reporters. And I was coming at it from a fan's perspective. And I didn't necessarily like the way that sports, the kind of avenue I would have to go down in order to continue a career in sports. Because as I was covering them, I felt my... I felt the fan being ripped away from me. I didn't enjoy that. I, to be honest with you, I enjoyed being a fan far more than I did covering sports. Now, fast forward to my bourbon career. I start writing about bourbon in 2006 to, and 2007 and get really serious about it between 2010 and 2012. And I kind of start in a period in which people weren't really writing about bourbon on a professional level. You did have some bloggers and you had a couple magazine writers, but there was not a lot of us. Uh, and to this day, there aren't that many professional whiskey writers. But back then, there were, there were not the prolifera of, of blogs, the social media wasn't around, and distillers were just happy to get attention from anybody, really. And the consumer base was were all about you know people who would uh, crack open this kind of a mythical bourbon egg and, and shine the light upon some of the secrecy. And those that was kind of what I was doing. And so I found myself in a place where both the consumer base and the distiller base were, were very excited to see any kind of writing I was doing. And while that has certainly changed, my passion for bourbon has not. 
the one thing that has changed in bourbon, and it's nothing like it was in sports, you you tend to have a lot of people who enter this space and want to make a career out of it, or they want to um, cash in on bourbon while it's big. And those people tend to go away because they don't have the passion for for American whiskey like many of us do. And they just see American whiskey as uh, as another check. And I think right now we're seeing a lot of those kinds of people come and go. And those who have the passion, those who want to see this, you know, through the end and, and enjoy it for the rest of our lifetime, you're going to see us around for a long, long time, even when whiskey's not popular anymore. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you're interested in getting a career in American whiskey, there's all kinds of avenues open for you. You can even find some places to go to school to learn more about it. I think Kenny's got a few ideas he'd like to share with you. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram if you ever want to connect. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here tonight. We are, well, during the day, I don't know, we might be driving right now, but we're recording this at night. And and this is going to be something that like, 
I'm going to, I'm going to really, really enjoy because uh, especially anybody out there that has had any background in science or chemistry, uh, we're about to geek out here. Yes. Yeah. I think the last time we really geeked out was when we were talking, uh, yeast and like, uh, with Pat Heist and then from wilderness trail, we kind of went, well, I did anyways, like went down this rabbit hole of like all these crazy spore talk and all this stuff that's way over a lot of people's head. But yeah, I'm excited about today. You sent me like beforehand, here's some info so we don't look stupid. And then I started reading. I'm like, well, if I'm going to look stupid. (laughs) uh, We were kind of talking about the the very beginning. Uh, Our our guest today sent over some, some abstracts or or some, um, some scientific papers that he had helped publish and stuff like that. And, and one of them, I'll I'll just kind of read the title was called profiling of non-volatiles in whiskey using ultra high pressure liquid chromatography quadruple the time of flight mass spectrometry. That was yeah. the title, and I, I was know. just like, like mind blown here, right? And I started reading through it, and then uh, I have a horticulture degree with Turfman. Like, I remember having to take organic chemistry, and like, I barely passed it. And this reminded me of a lot of it. So this is bringing me like bad memories of like failing at life in school. And so uh, <laughs> hopefully, uh, Tom will be easy on us. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. So today on the show, we have Dr. Thomas Collins. He is the or is an assistant professor at Washington State University in the Viticulture and Enology program at Washington State. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, welcome. Hi, thanks for uh, thanks for the invite. I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. This should be fun. Absolutely. Did I did I did I stumble on your uh, the program that you're in there? I, no, I think you got it right. Vit- I viticulture and analogy. All right, cool. I didn't butcher it too bad. So for um, for our people that want to know more about even what that is, explain even what viticulture and analogy is to our, our, our listeners out there. So vit- viticulture is the, the science of uh, grape growing. Vitus is the species for grapes. So viticulture is just the study of grape growing. And then enology is the study of winemaking. So... My background is I'm a chemist, and I've, I do work in aroma and flavor chemistry of grapes, wines, and distilled spirits. Nice. Yeah. Wow. So how did you choose that path? I mean, that would, I mean, if I had a, a chemistry degree, not any field to choose, that would probably be it. But how, would, how did you get involved with that? Well, I, I think you're on the right track there. If, if you're going to do this sort of thing, it's important to study something you're going to enjoy studying right? So there's lots of areas of science you can go into, and some of them I wonder how people get involved. But I think studying grapes and wine and spirits seems like an area that would be uh, enjoyable. You're going to have samples to work with and samples to all kinds of sensory <laughs> evaluation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All for research, all in the name of science. i'm surprised you don't have a plaque behind you that says that or something like that just a banner that says just in just for science here yeah well the the license plate holder on my car says life is too short to make bad wine so (laughs) very nice (laughs) and so i I guess kind of talk about um because i know you do a lot of stuff with wine now but uh, i know that you know we had originally reached out to you because i saw it uh you had done a presentation at tales uh, of the cocktails a few years ago. And yep. it was really, I, I said, like, there's got to be somebody out there that really knows like the chemistry behind bourbon. And and so you had, you had kind of been doing that. So kind of talk about um, your research over the years and kind of what you've been focused on in, in that category. 
So I guess the way, the, how I ended up here was I worked for a big winery, wine company in California, and I worked with them while I was doing my PhD at University of California at Davis. Um, and, and the focus of my research at that time was on oak aroma and flavor chemistry because the winery I worked for owned a cooperage. So they had a company that was making barrels for them. And the focus was really trying to understand how the coopering or barrel making process affects the outcome of the barrel, what, what the chemistry of the barrel looks like, and then ultimately the chemistry of the wine that's aged in those barrels. And so that was my PhD project, was really just trying to understand how what happens in the cooperage affects what happens to the barrel and then what happens to the wine stored in it. The next step is to look at, or the next one of the next steps in my research development was all right, so that's what happens when you put wine in a barrel and it's 15% alcohol. What happens if you then look at a different beverage, a different product? What happens if we put whiskey in that barrel instead? Now we're talking instead of 15% alcohol, we're at 60, 65% alcohol. You're going to extract different things. The barrels are made in a different way. So it just was sort of a logical extension to the research I had already done. And also gets me into working in distilled spirits, uh, you know, an area that I enjoy personally. And here's an opportunity to learn a little bit more about how things are different with spirits compared to wine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is cool. And so I guess let's, let's kind of go into that topic a little bit, right? I mean, I think the first one that you kind of mentioned was, was the oak and the wood and stuff like that. Kind of, kind of talk about some of your, your research that you did in regards of really what the um because i think there was one one paper you had also written called targeted volatile composition of oak wood samples taken during toasting at a commercial cooperage so kind of kind of let's talk about sure. uh really what what the goal uh, or the thesis of this was and then uh kind of like the results and, and really where you where you came out of this well from a, from a practical standpoint, the question we were trying to answer with the initial research when I still worked with the winery was the company owns this cooperage. So it gives us an opportunity as a company to have barrels made exactly the way we would like them to be made rather than buying barrels that someone else has made and decided how they wanted to do the toasting. This was an opportunity for winemakers to talk directly to the coopers and say, this is what I'm looking for in a barrel and have the coopers make them for that. It sounds like a great prospect, but it turns out it's hard. You need a translator between what winemakers say they're looking for and what coopers can actually do. So if the winemaker says, I want a certain kind of tannin or I want a certain aroma and flavor profile, there's, there has to be some translation for the cooper to understand what they're looking for and how winemakers speak sort of translates into something that they can do in the cooperage to achieve that goal. And so that's where this, the genesis for this research project was really just trying to understand if winemakers are looking for a certain thing, what do the coopers have to do to achieve that? And that morphed into really just trying to understand how does the whole process of toasting barrels work? And what are the key factors in terms of where the wood originates from, how it's seasoned, 
how you're going to toast it to get to a certain aroma and flavor profile that the winemakers might look for. And so that's where you get these studies where we're looking at volatile profiles changing during the toasting process, because we're trying to understand what components are being generated as you heat the barrel, as you toast it, and how they change throughout, throughout the toasting process. So, so it turns out many of the things that we associated with toasted oak in terms of the aromas of vanilla and clove and the spicy aromas and, and sort of the things that we're looking for from our barrels, most of those are produced during the toasting process. They're not present in the untoasted wood. What are some of those things that you're, that you're looking for? So the actual compounds? So yeah, yeah, get nerdy on us. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go down that road. Well, the first one is vanillin, which is not surprising the one that smells like vanilla. But we're also looking at things like eugenol and iso-eugenol, which have clove-type aromas. Um, eugenol is the primary compound in, in cloves. Um, we're looking at furfurols, which come from degradation of sugars during the toasting process. So the cellulose and hemicellulose that compose the structure of the wood in part, when, those, when that's heated, you get thermal breakdown that results in the formation of furfurol kinds of compounds that give you these toasty aromas. Um, another structural polymer in wood is lignin. And when you, when you break that down by heating it, you get things like, we, you get vanillin for one, you get guaiacol and 4-methylguaiacol, which um, are related, which are the whiskey lact, are related to the whiskey lactones. They're the kinds of aromas that give you spicy or medicinal characters, depending on their concentrations and which ones you get. So there are a number, I mean, we looked at uh, about a dozen different compounds and looked at how they're produced throughout the toasting process. So we put thermal couples into the staves as the barrel, before the barrels were toasted, so we could measure the temperature of the wood throughout the process. And then we took samples at regular intervals during the process and took that back to the lab for the analysis. And so while the barrels are being toasted, we're monitoring the temperature, we're collecting samples of the wood, and then we can do the analysis to figure out how things change throughout the toasting process. These compounds aren't all produced at the same time at the same rate. So some of them are, some of them take more heat to generate. And so they tend to develop later in the toasting process. Some things are produced very quickly, but if you have too much heat, then they get degraded broken down into other compounds or they just volatilize and disappear. And so depending on what the winemaker is looking for, you might want to toast the barrel for a longer period of longer period of time or a shorter period of time. You might do a high temperature, short time toasting to emphasize things that are produced quickly, or you might do a slower, low heat toasting protocol to produce things that take more heat to generate. And so by doing this kind of study, we could start to understand how to tailor the toasting process at the cooperage to get the specific aroma compounds that the winemakers were looking for. Interesting. Yeah. So with the, how do you control, I guess, the, the variables, you know, cause you have wood, which is a living thing. I'm just thinking of like turf research and like, you kind of have like a lot of uncontrollable variables because you are dealing with a living thing or was living. And so how, is there, are there times that like, you know, you have like, like you said, we're toasting exactly the same with the exact same type of wood and it doesn't translate like it did in the lab. 
you know, out in the real world. Right. Well, and, and you really kind of hit the nail on the he- nail on the head in terms of the problem with the toasting process generally is there's not a lot of control in terms of how that happens. So the, the Coopers all have a protocol. They're supposed to use this many fires and they're supposed to be on each fire for this amount of time. But one of the things we saw in this process is that there's a lot of variability just in how the how the individual coopers manage their fires. And so at this particular cooperage, there were two different coopers that did the toasting and they didn't manage their fires quite the same and their barrels were different. Even though they're following the same protocol, the same number of fires for the same amount of time, getting the intensity of the fire to be consistent is one of the things that you have to do well to get a consistent outcome. And that's that that's fairly difficult to do. And mm-hmm. so who's really on top of that can do a better job. But if the two coop, if the two coopers are not doing it quite the same, then you end up with barrels that look different. We could tell from the chemical analysis which cooper made which barrels. Really because interesting. It just it just makes it like with whiskey, you know, like you do single barrel picks and you have sister barrels on the same exact row, like honey barrels that just taste like significantly different than one that's like right next to it. Sure. I wonder if those variables in the toasting, even though they're theoretically at the same char or whatever, you know, protocol that, like you said, there's so many different variables that it, it's right. hard to like pin that down, I guess. It, that's exactly right. And we, and we, we saw the same thing in, you see the same thing in winemaking. If you taste wine from 20 different barrels that are all made same day, same cooperage, same wood, same forest, you have all those variables controlled, you still see variability in the outcome. And it's because, to a great extent, it's because of this variation in the toasting process that it's really hard to get that well controlled. And and most cooperages don't necessarily have a lot of instrumentation that says this is what the temperature is of the wood at this point. it's It's not easy to put that kind of instrumentation in place and most of them don't have it. And they're relying on the experience of the cooper to come up with something that's consistent. But I was it, it, it is a really difficult job to get that level of consistency day in and day out. I mean, we looked, one of the things we looked at is over a four day period, how consistent were the barrels from one day to the next, to the next, to the next. And there, there were definitely good days and bad days in terms of <laughs> consistency. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of looking at, at some of the data here, and and you have you have some graphs that that basically show um, the 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 type of oak, the the type of toast, and then you have like the level of of vanillin in regards of like what degree Celsius was the uh, I'm assuming it was either the temperature or was the wood at that time. So you can kind of really you can't actually calculate um, what's at what temperature you're trying to pull out. The most of that particular compound right so so we look again we looked at about a dozen different compounds and we measured the temperature throughout the process and the, and so we could start to say when we get to this kind of temperature we're going to see formation of these compounds and as it progresses certain compounds like guaiacol for example the longer you heat it the hotter it gets the more guaiacol you get but things like vanillin there's some there in the untoasted wood. It gets produced fairly early in the process, but as you continue to heat the barrel, it drops off. It's being converted into something else or it's just escaping. 
And so the goal of that was really to try and understand what temperature protocols you want to follow if you want to emphasize vanillin, for example, rather than guaiacol. So if you want something that has more of those vanillin characters, how would you achieve that? Whereas if you want something that's toasty, smoky, and has a lot of guaiacol, you just keep toasting it, and the hotter you go, the, the more of it you get. So it's it, it, those, those particular plots were really critical to trying to work with the Coopers to understand what they needed to do to make specific profiles. So what is the, uh, what's the outcome here, uh, kind of, of, of what you were trying to get, or, or what was like the, the general data? Like, what did it really say to you? Well, so I guess the, the, the main, the most important takeaway message from that whole study was there's a lot of variability in this process. And until Cooper's really focus on getting consistent toasting pro protocols, getting that part of the process down, all the discussion that we have in the wine industry about the oak coming from French forests, whether it's wide grain oak or tight grain oak, or it comes from this forest versus that forest, all of that stuff really doesn't matter if the cooper doesn't have a way to toast the barrels consistently. So what we saw was the variability in the toasting process sort of trumped everything else because until you could get that more consistent, you couldn't see differences between tight grain and open grain. You couldn't see differences between this forest and that. It was really more about how the barrels were toasted. So that was the first thing was the cooperage really needed to focus more on getting the coopers to be consistent in toasting. The second thing was, if you can do that, then you have the possibility of making barrels that have specific flavor profiles by by adjusting how you do the toasting to focus on vanillin or to focus on guaiacols. Those, these things all have distinct curves for when they're produced and when they're degraded. And so you can start to adjust how you make the barrels to focus on one flavor profile over another. So that was an important key. And then the other thing that came out of the overall process was as a wine company, we knew a whole lot more about how to assess barrels, how to make decisions about the composition of barrels and how that might interact with the wine that we were trying to make. And so we could give the winemakers a lot of information about barrel selection that I think allowed them to do some more interesting things with their barrels than they would have been otherwise. It's, it's always good to have good information about the tools that you're using. And this, this study did a good job of helping the winemakers better understand the, the contribution of oak in their, in their wine profiles. There's cooperages out there that not all of them toast their barrels, right? So I yep. guess this, this is also showing that, yeah, there is scientific research and study here that, that you, you can figure out that you can pour, uh, pull more of those types of compounds that you want by toasting it as well. Yep. And I, and I think just to jump ahead a little bit, I think there may be some information from this toasting study that could be beneficial for distilleries that are starting to move or are interested in moving into these barrels that are toasted and then charred. Because you're, you're going to use charred barrels, generally speaking, for bourbon, but there, there is a move, at least in part, towards doing some toasting the barrel first before you, before you char it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the potential benefit there is if below the char layer, you're going to have 
the opportunity to affect the composition of that, that toasted layer underneath the char. So you may be able to get slightly different profiles from this than you would with just a straight charred barrel. There you go. I want you to, uh, how can get a buttery taste out of a barrel? So like a Chardonnay, for instance, you know, real buttery, or like we've had a couple single barrel picks where we taste like, you know, it tastes like real buttery or oily. Where, what, what chemical compound is that coming from? Well, when we talk about Chardonnay and the butter in Chardonnay, that often comes from the malolactic fermentation. So it's actually a, a microbial, a lactic acid bacteria metabolite. Um, diacetyl is one of the compounds that is most associated with that character in Chardonnay. Um, and, and certain barrels may enhance that for a couple of reasons. One is um, some barrels may produce better conditions for the bacteria to do their thing. Back, you know, we, we do see a fair amount of oak sugars that are released during the toasting process. And so it may make it more conducive for some of these organisms to, to thrive. Um, those compounds in whiskey may be something that comes from the fermentation of the, of the mash and uh, gets carried over during the distillation. So gotcha. you, could have, you could have similar organisms producing diacetyl and related compounds during the fermentation. So I'm not sure if it's barrel related, but that would be in, in wine, it's usually a lactic acid bacteria from the malolactic fermentation that's making those kinds of characters. All right, Ryan, you got that written down? The sure more you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's let's talk about you know bourbon and whiskey in itself. Kind of kind of break us down here and really school us. Like, where where's what's like a chemical composition or a makeup of of really what this looks like and 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 kind of help me point me to a, one of these articles you've written too that that could help me also better understand it. Well. So the, the, the transition to looking at, at spirits came from just wanting to, to continue to work with oak and try to understand how oak composition affects not just wine, but let's look at other products as well. And so we started, we started looking into just what's, what's in different kinds of spirits. And so we looked at not just bourbon, but other whiskeys as well. So in one of the profiling, um, in the profiling work, we looked at how do bourbons and scotches and Irish whiskeys and other whiskeys compare to one another. And, and some of the differences there have to do with, with new oak versus oak that's already barrels that have already been used to age bourbon or other products. And, and, uh, and then one of the other questions that sort of came along that started the work that I've been doing with, with Jake Lon at Virginia Tech has been just this question of what's the difference between bourbon and rye whiskeys. And can we, can we differentiate them? So I guess to break it down is mash bill. Can we see differences in mash bill through the oak that we're using to age the whiskeys in. Because yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of started at the top right there. Like, can you can you discern the types of whiskeys by the mash bill after it's been created uh, from a chemical uh, way to do it, and, and, and kind of talk about the process of like how you came to your conclusion too. 
So it, I mean, it, it started with just a small, a small study where we just went to the local liquor store and picked up a dozen bourbons and a dozen rye whiskeys and then did our analysis to see, can we, can we tell them apart chemically? And I think the profiling paper that talks about bourbon, Tennessee and rye whiskeys shows that when you look at the non-volatile composition, so non-volatile means things that we're not smelling. So to, so the things that make it smell the way they do are the volatile compounds. Those are the things that we can actually smell with our noses. Non-volatile composition refers to things like some of these oak-related compounds that get extracted during barrel aging, but contribute to color, they contribute to mouthfeel, they contribute to, in some cases, to aroma, but not, not entirely. And so we were using the, the LC QTOF to do the analysis of the compounds that are extracted into these whiskeys. And what you, what, we, what you can see in that profiling is... Before you go too crazy, what's an LCQTOF? So the LC is the HPLC, that's the, the liquid chromatography quadrupole time of flight mass spec. So that's the instrument that we're using to do the analysis. So the LC part separates the, the individual compounds um, based on how they interact with the chromatography column. And then as they come out of the, out of the LC, they're introduced to the mass spec. And the mass spec separates whatever's coming out at that time, it, it separates them by mass, so how heavy the compounds are. And because it's a quadrupole time of flight, we get really good mass resolution. So we can separate things that are pretty similar to one another. And it also gives us an estimation of what the chemical formula is so that we can then really get a leg up on identifying specific compounds that are involved. And when we look at these kind of compounds extracted from oak, there's, an, there's not surprisingly a lot of overlap because bourbons and ryes, generally speaking, are aged in very similar new charred casks. And so you're going to extract a lot of the same things irrespective of what whiskey you're, you're putting into it. And so bourbons and ryes aged in Newcastle, for example, look very different than Scotch whiskeys aged in reused casks because we've extracted a lot, of, a lot of things in the first use and there's not as much left to extract in subsequent uses. Can, so, you, can you like, uh, without, because of course we can't do it visually, but can you, can you explain really how they are you know, if, if you were to look at something, like how does it look that they're actually different on paper? Um, so there's, a, there's a, several different ways we can do it. One of them is just to look at individual compounds and just measure the abundance or concentration of these individual compounds in the different whiskey types. And when you do that, there's a lot of variability and bourbons and rice generally the concentrations don't vary that much for things like guaiacol, for some of the oak-related tannins that get extracted, for any of the any of the things that we're looking at using the LCQTOF. They generally look pretty similar. We don't see a lot of separation. We do sometimes see separation by by producer because they, they're using specific cooperages. So that sort of points to 
maybe differences that are related to the barrels and not so much differences between the spirits. What are some of those differences? Like uh, what, what, what are the actual compounds that you're seeing that are either higher or lower in rye versus bourbon and stuff? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. What are some of those differences? Like, uh, what 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 are the actual compounds that you're seeing that are either higher or lower in rye versus bourbon and stuff? Well, so in the when we look at the oak related compounds, we're looking at things like glycol and eugenol, and we're looking at some of the some of the wood tannins. We're looking at um, phenylpropanoids, things like cumaric acid and syringol and syringic acid, things that are oak, they're extracted from oak. We do, we, we do, so there were several things. One is we didn't see big differences between bourbon and rye. We do see some differences between younger whiskeys and older whiskeys in terms of the kinds of compounds that are extracted. We tend to see simpler um, wood-related compounds, monomers, so things just like the cumaric acid, syringic acid, ferulic acid, um, that are extracted in younger whiskeys. And then as you get to older whiskeys, you start to see more tannin, you start to see dimers and bigger, bigger sort of not quite tannins, but somewhere between the simple monomers and the tannins, you see these smaller complexes of oak related compounds. So lig lignans, things like uh, syringa resinol and leone resinol, things that are more more complicated probably take more time to extract we also see a number of triterpenoid compounds that are extracted into the whiskeys and again the longer the whiskey is aged the more of these things you, you get extracted and then the other class of compounds that you see are 
are lipids, so fatty acid kinds of compounds that um, become more oxidized as the whiskey spends more time in barrel. So there are things that sort of make sense. You're going to have more oxidation the longer you're in the barrel, and that's going to be reflected in the profile of the lipids in the in the whiskey as well. So um, what we were seeing was more difference between younger whiskeys and older whiskeys, not big differences between bourbons and rice. I'm looking at this table too, and with bourbon whiskeys, it seems like there's more differentiation compounds in the bourbon whiskeys than any other. Is that correct? Am I reading that right? Yes, you're reading that right. And I, I, I think in part, it had to do with availability of whiskeys at the time we did this study. So we, when we were doing this, you could find a broader range of ages of bourbons than you could for rye. This was during that period of time when rye whiskeys were, when it, when it was hard to find older rye whiskeys. And so most of the whis- rye whiskeys we looked at were younger whiskeys, whereas the bourbons, we had a full range. And so I think part of the reason there were more compounds in the bourbon that differentiated the bourbon than rye was we just had a more diverse set of bourbons than we did for rye in that first study. Gotcha. I thought it was just proving that bourbon is king to everything. We can go with that. Yeah, I'm okay that, with that's that. My, so. That's my <laughs> hypothesis. Well, now that there are older rye whiskeys available again, we could go back and repeat the study and see if we get similar outcomes. Uh, I'm in on that. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. We'll use Kenny's bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at like, again, at this table and, and kind of, uh, let's, let's talk about some of these like, uh, dilahydroxy benzenol idle idle. I can't even try. Dihydroxybenzaldehyde? Yeah, like like we'll go with that. Yeah, so yeah, thank you for, for saving me there. Yeah. Um, kind of talk about like what each one of these are um, really contributing to uh, the bourbon itself, too. Well, so I, I would say the first thing is we don't necessarily know what all of these compounds are doing in terms of their effects on the aroma. So that dihydroxybenzaldehyde is likely a breakdown product from lignin. And it's produced during the toasting slash, well, in this case, charring process um, from, from the degradation of the lignin that's in the wood. Um, it's probably got, if I had to guess, it's some sort of a medicinal, maybe spicy kind of aroma. Um, nice. And so, it's, I mean, it's going to be related, related to things like guaiacol and 4-methylguaiacol. All right. What about octanic acid? So that's one of the lipids. So octanoic acid is a short chain, so it's eight carbon um, lipid. That's probably coming from one of the younger whiskeys, I'm thinking. Maybe. Um, uh, and then as you get, at, so you're going to see between eight and 12, 16 carbon uh, chains are pretty typical for what we see in in these products. And then as the whiskey ages, you'll start to see things like uh, hydroxyoctanoic acid or di- dihydroxyoctanoic acid. So you'll see you'll have more oxygen incorporated just as those lipids get oxidized. And that's going to affect, might affect the, maybe to a small extent, the oiliness. It's going to give you some slightly different aromas, particularly if you start to get a lot of the oxidized lipids present. You, you start to get into what in cognac would be called the rancio character. 
So that sort of uh, character of oxidized lipids. Gotcha. So Ryan, <laughs> Ryan, if you're keeping track here, I'm zero for two on pronouncing these correctly. But uh, well, I'm not even trying. So I, I can. Yeah, even, I appreciate appreciate the effort, right? Yeah. Well, we don't we don't even have to we don't have to do the next one because or the next two because yeah, vanillin and vanillic acid, vanilla, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. unless yeah. there's something crazy I don't know about vanilla, you can you can school us on that. No, that's you're you're dead on there. <laughs> yep. All right, then there's uh, decano decanoic acid. Yeah, decanoic acid. Good. Decano so that's the ten yeah. carbon. That's the ten carbon chain. So you had octanoic. I know that one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and then dodecanoic would be the twelve, and then you get into into the longer chain ones. But those are those are part from the wood, part from uh, yeast metabolism. Cool. Es esculitin. So how about that one? Um, that's a wood related. That's one of the one of the compounds that's. Um, I mean, it's derived from the wood. It's it's uh, a lignin degradation product as well. I don't know what specific character it would have, but you know, it's it's going to be part of that set of volatile phenols that are that are products of degradation of the wood. So we see similar things in wine as well. All right. Hmm. We got three more to go here, Ryan. So we got uh, elagic acid or elagic? Elagic. Yep. All right. Elagic. So elagic. You know, elagic. Elagic acid is a, is a breakdown product from wood tannins. So when you heat wood, um, the elagic tannins break down to elagic acid and then ultimately to gallic acid. So um, it might con contribute some bitterness. Um, when it's in, before it's broken down, when it's still a wood tannin, it's going to give you some astringency, some, some coarseness, some of that woodiness that you sometimes get in bourbons that may have been in barrel a little too long. Awesome. All right. So we got a uh, heptamethoxyflavonoid. Oh, heptamethoxyflavonoid. That's one I'm not really sure what that does. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd say wow. we stopped the chump, but man, a lot. There's no way that would happen today. <laughs> and well, then a common theme, though, I'll, I will notice with this is that you keep saying wood. And so uh, it, I guess it just proves that 70% of the flavor comes from the wood. Yeah, there's some significant percentage of the flavor is wood derived, and flavor and a lot of the aromas are wood derived. Um, so that I mean, so that was part of the part of what we're trying to understand is just how critical is wood to the character of these products, and you would guess going in that it would be, um, and and it is now in terms of the aroma. We didn't in this study look at using gas chromatography, so a way to look at the volatile compounds because, I mean, we you you do have different characters in rye and bourbon in the aroma. Um, and those are not, I mean, that, those are not going to be necessarily wood-related compounds. There are going to be some volatile aroma compounds that are related to the mash bill. And that's, that's something that we have, have looked at in a subsequent paper where we worked with a distiller to produce whiskeys with different mash bills, different, different amounts of corn and rye, so that we could try and understand that part of the problem better that part of the equation. But one of the difficulties we have in this kind of work is 
as researchers, we don't have access to what the mash bills are that any of these distillers are producing, and that's fine. So we have to make some estimation about what what they're doing. But it, but then we worked with a, with a distiller to actually produce whiskeys of the mash bills that we that we wanted to try. Mm. And so, what kind of budget did they give you to like go uh, buy these bottles? Were they like, uh, here's how much you got to spend? Um, the money we used for this um, came from bits and pieces of startup funds, different sources. Some of it came from uh, our own pockets just because, you know, we wanted to do this work and we were interested in it. And we really weren't sure where to turn to to get funding to support this kind of work. <laughs> there you go, Ryan. Yep. Kickstarter. Self Kickstarter. Yep. Yeah, well, that's we we we've, we've kicked that idea around of doing a, a Kickstarter to try and get funding to do some of these projects, just because they're you know it takes money to do this analysis, and some of it some of it comes from various startup funds and things that we have a little more control over what we can spend the money on. So mm-hmm. I'm in for ten bucks. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you come it. In. I'll give you a hundred. <laughs> I'm not cheap like Kenny. <laughs> so I have a question. I, one thing that you, sometimes you get into whiskey is like real fruity notes. What are, what are those compounds that are bringing that out? Well, some of those are ethyl esters of some of these fatty acids. Typically, those are the fruity compounds that we see in wine are um, higher alcohols that are produced during fermentation. And then with the amount of ethanol that's around, you you get... A combination of the fatty acid and the ethanol to produce an ethyl ester, and many of the ethyl esters have these fruity aromas. Yeah. So while we uh, kind of move on, I've got a lot of questions that are coming in through our live chat uh, through here. So I kind of want to get to some of these because there's there's some good ones here. Uh, and Where's curious the live chat. Yeah, I'll send you the link here. So um, <laughs> so so as we uh, as we kind of go through here, um, there's uh, there's a really good one, and it's kind of talking about barrel entry proof. And I'm not too sure if you've done any research on that. And this one might just be your, your best uh, estimate or guess of knowledge here. But um, can you talk about barrel entry proof and the effect it would have on the solubility of the compounds that are pulled from the barrel? Because many people claim that a lower entry proof like 107 or 110 results mm-hmm. in a better whiskey rather than putting in at something like the max capacity at, at 125. Sure. So the first, the first thing is we, we haven't done that sort of research yet, although that's something I'm interested in doing. Um, the whole reason we started down this path of looking at distilled spirits was just to get a wildly different entry proof from what we were doing with wine. Wine, we're at 15% alcohol. Um, if you're at 125, you're 62 and a half. So it's a completely different solvent system. You have so much more ethanol, it's going to affect what gets extracted from the wood. And so we definitely see, if you compare wine and spirits, you, you will see very different things extracted because ethanol is a really strong solvent. That's the difference between 15 and 60, 62 and a half. Um, you, you won't see as wildly different outcomes if you're looking at 110 versus 125. So there'll be some differences. That's still a significantly higher level of ethanol, but it's not going to be as different as what we see between wine and spirits. The higher the alcohol, the higher the ethanol level, the higher the proof, 
the more organic compounds you'll be able to extract. Um, you'll definitely, you should extract more at higher proof than at lower proof, mm -hmm. but you're going to extract different things as well. And so I'm, it, it's just, it's one of the things that we want to do. You, you're going to see a different set of extraction. You're going to see probably more of the triterpenoids. You're going to see more of the lipids extracted at higher proof than at lower. Um, but I don't know yet to what extent that would have, what, it, what impact that would have on the, on the whiskey itself. Yeah, it's, it kind of um, reaffirms there was an assumption in the chat that said uh, uh, somebody that took a few classes over at Independent Stave and the, they, at least independent staves said they did some data and did some analysis and said that um, barrel entry proof of 114 produces the most flavor compounds and they had the data to back that up. Whereas something that uh, can be higher can sometimes extract more of the undesirable compounds. That yeah, are coming yeah exactly. You're, you're definitely going to extract different things at 125 than you would at 110. Um, you're going to extract a lot of, a lot of it's going to be very similar, but you're definitely you have the opportunity to extract some other things at higher proof that may or may not be desirable. You may get better outcomes at lower. We just, we just haven't done the work. We haven't had the opportunity. We haven't had access to the whiskeys to be able to do that. We are, we are starting to work with a local distiller here to, to go down these, down these rabbit holes to see what there is to see. We got whiskey. We can help you out. You just let us know any samples. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and another kind of thing that came up, people were kind of wondering, you know, and I think you you kind of talked about it a little bit about not really being able to discern a whole lot of difference between rye and bourbon based on their mash bill it, from a scientific level. But I mean, something that's like a, a weeded bourbon versus a rye bourbon. Um were you able to find any discernible differences between those or is it at the end of it, it doesn't look any different in science? Well, so some of it comes down to the tools we're using. So when we use the LC QTOF and we're looking at non-volatile compounds, what we're really, that's a, that's a good tool for looking at situations where you have different kinds of barrels because it's a really good tool for looking at what you're extracting from the barrel. And so we can really easily see differences between bourbons, ryes, and scotch whiskeys or Irish whiskeys, things that are aged in used barrels. That's really straightforward. To, to, to see differences in mash bill, we need to look at the, at the volatile profile. So we need to use gas chromatography instead and in this most recent study, we've started to use that as a tool. And then we are able to see more differences based on mash bill. We haven't, with that, yet looked at uh, rye versus weeded bourbons, but that's on the list of things to do. Um, the other thing I would say is using the LCQ TOF, we can see, we, we can differentiate between whiskeys of different ages because a lot of those differences are related to what's being extracted from the barrel. Um, we can see some differences between producers based on the barrels that they're using. And, and so it's, it's a tool that could be used for things like, is this whiskey really what it says it is? 
in terms of age or producer. I, I think with some work and with the right set of library standards, we could start to use this as a tool for authentication in case, in case there was some concern about a whiskey being what the label says it is. Um, we're not there yet, but I think we, it's, it's a tool we could use for that. Um, the Scotch regulatory agencies are, are using these kinds of tools to verify authenticity of Scotch whiskeys, for example. Do you think that you could look at, um, you know, whether you're using gas chromatography or HPLC or anything like that uh, to sit there and look at, and I don't know if, if you're this deep into the bourbon world uh, with dusties or basically bourbons that were uh, from the, the 60s, 70s and stuff like that versus what's produced today. I mean, do you have any hypothesis on, on kind of what that would look like? Well, a lot of oxygen. <laughs> well, oxygen would certainly be one of one of the key things to, to to be concerned about it. But assuming that the the package was well sealed and you're not getting a lot of oxygen into the older whiskey, it could be a tool to go back and look at. Well, for example, the the question of entry proof, because you you go back to a certain time, one ten was more common than than where we're at now. So there may be possibilities to look at that. It's also, you know, a tool to look at um, differences differences in production practices as well. Some of that would be gas chromatography. Some of it would be liquid chromatography. You know, it's something we are interested in doing. Getting access to those kind of samples is is not always easy, but it, we've had some discussions about doing that kind of that kind of work. Need to do it with Jack Rose and. Uh... Just go through their whiskey collection. Their <laughs> <research>. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Bill Thomas would love that. Yeah, all for science. You, all in the name of research. That's how all it, for science. All yeah, absolutely. You Life's know, too short to make bad bourbon too. <laughs> yeah. There we go, Ryan. We're gonna sell. We're gonna sell uh, license plate holders with that on it now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so yeah, so we're kind of we're kind of creeping up to the, the top of the hour here, and I, I kind of want to uh, like finish this on on a strong note. You know, is there is there one thing that you you took away from a lot of this research that uh, the average Joe can can make a like a better informed or buying decision or anything like that, or, or like what's a what's a big takeaway from from everything that you've been doing here? Well. I, I mean, I think we we touched on a little while ago that it's it's a pretty pretty large percentage of the aroma and flavor in distilled spirits comes from the cask that it's stored in. Um, with bourbon, we we definitely see some differences between producers. We definitely see differences in the age of the whiskey, and you know, there's some there's some really, I mean, it's. As you say, the more you know, the better the better you're going to be. And it's interesting just to see how these things play out as you look at younger versus older whiskeys. And a, a fair amount of this work has been done during the period of time when the industry was sort of scrambling to to have enough older older bourbons, older rice for the marketplace. There was a lot of demand, and so it's you know it, some of this is you, you can see some of that challenge in the results that we're looking at in terms of being able to maintain the age of the products that they're, they're putting on the marketplace. Fantastic. And I guess I got one more question that came into the chat because uh, sure. it's really going to marry your two worlds here, right? So <laughs> um, what about when a whiskey is aged 
in a secondary cask like a like a wine or a port casks like sure. Envy and some other ones that are out there. Uh, is is there a type of like chemical reaction that's happening with this blend? Um, you know, kind of give us your your kind of take on that. I mean, we definitely didn't really touch on this because it was more in this in the Scotch world, but. And when you're looking at scotches, there's this big differentiation between scotches that have been aged in ex-bourbon barrels versus sherry butts. And we can we can pick those out night versus day. The ones that have aged aged in sherry casts look very different from the ones that have been aged in bourbon casts. And I would expect we'd see the same sort of thing if you started looking at other whiskeys that have been finished in port barrels or Zinfandel barrels or Pinot Noir barrels or whatever other kinds of things that are out there, you would see the influence of that other product as well. Some of it is direct influence from the product itself, so the port or the Zinfandel, but some of it is also just differences in the wood. You're, you're going to see some differences because of toasted wood versus charred wood. You, there, I mean, there's, there, there are definitely things to see. And we can also, I think, see when we're looking at the sherry casts, we can see differences not just between sherry and bourbon, but between Spanish oak sherry casts and American oak sherry casts. So there are, there are definitely characteristics of the wood that shine through in spite of the, the influence of the sherry, too. It all comes back to the wood. It all comes yep. back to the wood. There we go. I think yeah. we can, our conclusion or is that we need barrel statements instead of age statements like what barrel was in the char level how yeah. long you know sure. i think that's sure, the absolutely. conclusion it all comes back to the wood yep well this was fantastic you know tom thank you so much for for coming on the show today and really like i said schooling us uh i've i've fumbled on more words than i have uh, i think in in a long time trying to uh trying to get them out here and really you know, educating our, our listeners. And, and for us, uh, for myself, I think this was uh, super interesting just to kind of see this from a, a data perspective. Uh, sure. In my business, we always say that the data never lies. And so when you look at it of, of really what is being influenced by the, to the whiskey uh, via, as we just said, all comes back to the wood. It's, it's super interesting in my opinion when we see this, but I also want to let you uh, give a, a, a an opportunity to plug where people can either find out more about you or uh, research any more about you or your look at some of your papers. Uh, and if, uh, if we're going to look after this, so hopefully uh, we'll get some thumbs up and green lights and, and you'll be able to find some of these papers uh, on our yeah. website when this podcast is, is aired. Um, so go ahead and give yourself a plug there too. Well, first of all, it's absolutely been my pleasure to do this. I, I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about some of this work. And I'm glad to see there's interest in in this sort of thing because it can get pretty dry and academic at times. So <laughs> I feel like you're just like yelling in a cave. Like <laughs> <laughs> Good to break it down and, and talk to folks who who are passionate about it and appreciate what the implications for some of this might be. So I really appreciate it. And again, um, if you want to learn more about what we're doing, some of it is posted at the uh, Washington State University Department or Viticulture and Enology Program website. Um, you can Google that and it'll pop up and you'll be able to find find me somewhere on that on that web page. So happy to, happy to answer questions that people might have as well. You got it. All right. Very so cool. if you got questions, start Googling 
and good luck. Uh, <laughs> and good luck. <laughs> but but seriously, thank you again for coming on the show. So reach out. You can try to find Tom out there. You can always reach out to us too. Team at bourbonpursuit.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram to see what we're drinking, what we're talking about, where we are today. And if you like the show and you want to help it grow, we would appreciate it. Write a review. And if you even want to be part of these, as I mentioned, you got to be here during the live chat. Uh, you can support the show on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. Brian, go ahead and close this out. Yeah, Tom, thanks, man. That was that was enjoyable. I was trying to wrap my head around these concepts and try to talk intelligently about it. Yeah, I think, you know, science, you try to, either you try to do something so you can re- replicate it and, you know, have something that's proven. And I think time and time again with spirits and bourbon, you just can't replace that human element. And there's so many yep. variables with, you know, nature and then the human element of making a consistent product. So uh, it's uh, interesting. And I hope there's more continued research about it because it is fascinating. All right. Terrific. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it immensely. And thanks for the interest. And yeah, absolutely. The human element is a huge part of it. And a lot of this was really focused on what are the things that matter? What are the things that the human element can focus on to get a better outcome? Absolutely. Perfect. All right. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.